Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the host of New Books in History. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say that we have Monica Black on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Death in Berlin, From Weimar to Divided Germany. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the host of New Books in History. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say that we have Monica Black on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Death in Berlin, From Weimar to Divided Germany. The Germans, as you probably know, suffered many, many casualties during World War I and World War II. Millions and millions, relatively large percentages of the German population died during those two conflicts. So death was a familiar companion to Germans in the 19-teens and 20s and 30s and 40s. So it's little wonder that they paid a lot of attention to it. And Monica does a terrific job in this book of explaining what they did and what they thought about death and how what they did and thought about death changed as a result of ideological pressure and also practical necessity and German tradition and a lot of things. In her book, death is sort of a negotiation between reality and ideals and traditions and religions and these kinds of things. And she gets us right into the conversation about what to do about the dead who were so many in this period in German history. I highly recommend that you go and read the book. I really enjoyed talking with Monica today. She's very lively, as you'll see. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Monica. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm really well. Thank you for asking. Certainly. Uh, Today we're talking with Monica Black, who has written a terrific book called Death in Berlin from Weimar to Divided Germany. This is a really fascinating book because it shows the ways in which the, what might be called the German way of death, uh, changed over the course of about a 40-year period, and, and it changed a lot. It, it was contested territory, as, as Monica points out, because there were various interests in German society who wanted to take death and use it in certain ways ideologically, and there were other people that were resistant to that. And then, I think most fascinating, there were exigencies involved. There were things that happened that required action very quickly. And what I'm speaking of here is usually some sort of mass death, especially the Allied bombing campaigns, that, were, that forced Germans to, to do things, to work more quickly, to, to relax the constraints that they had on, on uh, funerary rituals and, and, and commemoration. And they really had to improvise. They had to do things that, which are, must have been horribly disturbing um, to, to, to do something with these, uh, well, dead people. And, and Lord knows the Germans uh, had to deal with death a lot, given the, you know, the millions in, in both the cases of World War One and World War II of, of people that died a result of, um, of those two uh, catastrophes. So I, you know, I found this book extraordinarily uh, fascinating, and I'm sure that you will too. I, I hope you go out and buy it. I hope that Cambridge University Press puts out a paperback that is affordable. That would be good so that more people can buy it, but you can listen to this interview and you know, go to your local library and ask them to uh, get a copy of it for you. So in any event, I enjoyed the book. Monica, thank you for being with us. Uh, could you begin the interview today by telling us a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to, Marshall. Thank you so much for all the wonderful things you said about the book. And I uh, I have to second the part about a paperback. Um, yeah. But in any case, yeah. you know, everybody says that, of course. <laughs> um, I So a little bit about myself. I'm Monica Black. I'm assistant professor of history at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I teach, um, I teach European courses in European history and also, of course, in 20th century Germany, particularly. Um, I did my PhD work 
uh, of which, you know, this, this book is essentially the product, the end result of that. Um, I did my PhD work at the University of Virginia. Um, but you're not from Virginia, I can tell by your accent. No, but I'm from North Carolina. Nobody, okay. All right. No, I wouldn't have done that. Right. I know. It's a, I think somehow I, over the course of my life, for various reasons, uh, it, it kind of fell away. But I think, I think there was probably more of one when I was younger, but it, it's, it's, it's pretty much gone now. Yeah. Uh, except when I'm speaking with family, and then it's it's surges somehow. <laughs> really strange. It's a really strange thing. Um, but I worked at the University of Virginia with uh, Alon Confino, who um, was my mentor there. Mm-hmm. And and in many ways, he helped. He was he was part of the inspiration for this book. I would have to say. Can we call him the famous Alon Confino. The famous. Oh yes, of course we can call him that. <laughs> I think I was in graduate school with him. I can't remember. Were you? I, I don't. Remember. I went to Berkeley. I think he was there. Yeah, yeah. Then maybe so. Yeah. It's great possible. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you uh, came to write this book, what the genesis, the origins of the book are, other than just this was my dissertation? <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think in some ways, you know, it's one of those things that I've ref- I ref- I've reflected back on many times, trying to piece that all together for myself. I mean, in in some ways, I think that I was always a person for some reason who was fascinated by cemeteries, and I was fascinated by um, by funerary rituals, and I was fascinated by. I mean, I, I there's a certain kind of gothic tendency, if you will, in my personality. Uh, I like, you know, as a child, I remember my grandparents lived in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. My 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 great grandparents, I should say on a farm and their farm was near uh, a very old, well, old by American standards anyway, very old cemetery from the 19th century. And I used to go uh, as a pretty small kid um, and walk around in the cemetery. And I always loved cemeteries. And I especially loved, once I kind of got introduced to Germany, the culture of Germany, I loved German cemeteries. And anyone who's ever been to Germany and been in a cemetery knows what I mean. There's a real beauty um, in a German cemetery that that it, in many ways is almost unknown in the United States. I mean, people take enormous care with graves there mm-hmm. and they, they, the, with the, the upkeep of graves and planting them and weeding them. And that's a kind of a, that's a, that's a year round process. People going to their family graves and taking care of them and they're beautiful. So part of it was that. And part of it was my sort of, uh, I, I mean, I was trying to find something that I could write about in German history that would provide sort of access to um, the, if you will, the kind of deeper layers of culture, the parts of culture that are not, that are not obvious in everyday life that, you know, that take place in a, that take place in moments where they're not, they're not necessarily observed. And, And there are parts of the way that we deal with the dead. And I don't just mean, you know, in the United States or in Germany, I mean, I think in culture generally, there are aspects of dealing with the dead that are never really articulated. They're just sort of um, people know what's right and they know what's wrong when you're dealing with the dead. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's an aspect of culture that is kind of subterranean. And I was fascinated by that. And then I also remember that in the summer, in the summer before my second year of graduate school, I read Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. And I was just, it's a wonderful book. Uh, I recommend it to any of your listeners who haven't read it before. You know, it's this deeply philosophical, you know, sort of heavily German philosophical novel about a lot of different things. But one of the obsessions of the book, it seemed to me, was death. And and how do you think about, um, about it, it was about it, the, the book thinks you through lots of aspects of, of, of death and what it means to us. Uh, and, I remember being struck by the obsessiveness of the discussion of death in the book. And I wondered about that at the time. Why is he so heavily influenced by or interested in death? Mm-hmm. Why is Mann writing about that? And, and that was one of the things that I started thinking, well, is this something that's kind of in, in, indigenous to German culture, that kind of interest in death or and its meaning? Or, you know, is it just something from the period because Mann was writing after the First World War? So I started thinking about all those things, and and then I thought, well, why not write a book about death in Germany in the 20th century? What would that look like? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, to go back to one point you made, the, the 
what might be called German traditions. But traditions in general are often revealed when they're under pressure. I know this is the case in in uh, Russia under the Soviets. What what was Russian became immediately apparent once the Soviets attempted to Sovietize everything. And we see some of that in the German case when the National Socialists attempt to National Socialize everything, including death. Um, it, it, there, there are differences between the two. Um, the primary one I'm thinking of being that I think the National Socialists had uh, much greater support among the population than uh, the Soviets did or the Bolsheviks did. But in any case, you can see what was German or Russian it, 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 at these moments when, when these uh, funerary rituals and commemorations is, is put under pressure. And that's kind of an interesting natural experiment in and of itself. So let, let's dive right in, into the book. The the, the first chapter is really about attempts to, um, well, attempt to deal with uh, commemoration um, after World War One and the, the ways in which that became somewhat controversial. So maybe you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the problem with the problem that, that the Germans as a group of people faced after the First World War was that um, that they'd had this tremendous experience of, of years of, of death of the, of young people, of young men. And, you know, the better part of an entire generation had been in one way or another involved in this war and many, many of them had died. And so when, you know, at the end of the war in Britain, let's say, or in France, where at least the argument could be made that the war had been won, this argument could not be made um, in Germany, obviously, Germany had lost the war, and that meant that trying to figure out what the deaths had meant, what they had been for, was horribly, horribly complicated and was absolutely contested from the beginning of the Weimar Republic until the very end of it. I mean, there was never, there was never a moment when Germans could reach a consensus, kind of social consensus about the meaning of those deaths. And so then, of course, people... Um, you know, depending on what your political that what you thought about the meaning of war death in the First World War, the meaning of the deaths of those young men had everything to do um, with your with your politics. Frankly, it also had to do with your religious convictions, of course. But but where we see the the real eruption of controversy uh, over the meaning of death after the First World War was precisely in terms of politics. So. The Nazis had a very particular sense of what the war deaths had been about. They believed that the deaths had not absolutely not been in vain, that they, in fact, were the kind of, you know, they were the seedbed, if you will, of a new Germany. A new Germany would arise from from these deaths. So they, in fact, the deaths were imbued with with tremendous meaning for the National Socialists. If you were if you were on the left, you know, if you, particularly if you were on the far left, if you were a communist, you know, the deaths had been about um, had been about. The, you know, they were the product of imperialist warmongering, and 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 in that sense, you know, maybe in, in some ways doubly unmeaningful or or doubly problematic. And if you were somewhere in the middle, you know, there were there were various views. But but the point is that what it seems to me that particularly societies in twentieth uh, century societies, and uh, in particular, it seems have a need, have a powerful need to commemorate their dead. And so if you, in order to sort of do that, in order to sort of develop a way of talking about the meaning of what's happened in the past and, and how we can formulate for the present a, uh, an approach to understanding the past, we have to have some kind of consensus about that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that consensus could never be reached. Germans could never, for example, celebrate a kind of, uh, at least not, not at the level of the state. In other words, the state was never was never able to create a day that all Germans would mourn on. Mm-hmm. So then, of course, people mourned on the traditional religious holidays that were that were set aside for mourning. But but you know, as a nation, if you will, that was never possible. Mm-hmm. Where? Let me ask this: Where? Where? Um, I think I think many Americans are, are familiar with uh, military cemeteries overseas, because many mm-hmm. Americans uh, lie overseas. Uh, yes. Uh, that is uh, American um, uh, uh, casualties. Uh, what, where were the where 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 what did the Germans do with bodies after World War One? After World War One, well, I mean, you know, the um, plenty of 
of bodies remained precisely where they fell. I mean, they were, you know, there were um, huge shell craters that became essentially the sites of mass graves, or, you know, there would be instances in which uh, there were attempts to bury bodies, but then the fighting would resume and the bodies would be scattered. And no one knew at a certain point, people had a very difficult time um, even identifying body parts. That was all profoundly problematic. Mm -hmm. There were, um, cemeteries constructed. There were German war cemeteries constructed in Belgium, for example, um, in France, uh, and and they they are there to this day. I've actually never visited one, and I've really wanted to because mm-hmm. um, I'm very interested in that. And it's just it's not it's the opportunity hasn't presented itself. But there there were cemeteries, and they they remain. Um, but but a lot of people, and this was a tremendous psychological problem for a lot of Germans, that the bodies that it was it was quite well known that the many of the bodies couldn't really be buried mm-hmm. uh, as such, and so that that created a lot of psychological dissonance for people after mm-hmm. the. Mm-hmm. Was there any? Were there, there must have been cases in which the bodies were brought home, though, as well. After the First World War, yes, there were, and. It, um, probably that had a lot to do, this is something that I don't go into very much in the book, but probably that had a lot to do with where exactly, uh, with the availability of, of transportation to get them home and those sorts of things. And, you know, of course, German society was under tremendous stress, especially by, you know, 1917 or so, tremendous economic stress, tremendous stress trying to even feed the population. So um, those such efforts as may have existed at a certain point became less and less tenable over time mm-hmm. to transport bodies, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the German society is very hierarchical at this moment. And, and was there a difference between the way, say, officers were buried or treated or sort of highly ranked officials and then sort of your common um, gefreiter, you know, your sort of ordinary soldier? During the First World War, yeah, I, I mean, I certainly would assume so. This is not something that I go into in the book, mm-hmm. and it's not something that I did a lot of research on. Yeah. Of course, that the answer to your question is yes. Exactly what happened, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I do know that in the Second World War, the Nazis were very, very keen that there would be no distinction uh, of rank yeah. between between different soldiers. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, I, I was just interested because I, I know I know the Nazi. We'll come to that in a second. But the Nazis were much more egalitarian about these things. So let's actually uh, move on then to the to the Nazi period. As you say, the Nazis, uh, especially Hitler, uh, claimed that um, his movement was born out of uh, Front Soldaten, you know, and they were sort of in the trenches, and that's where National Socialism was born. Right. Uh, there's a long story he tells about this, uh, and um, he takes a particular interest in uh, commemoration of the war dead. So what? what what did the Nazis say about um, um, about commemorating World War One dead? We've already talked about that a little bit, and then prospectively, from the point of view of the mid nineteen thirties, how, how are they going to treat dead in the coming war? Sort of, you mean thinking ahead to an, to the to the next war, or thinking yeah, about how they, you know yeah. how 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 are, how are they going to re understand um, uh, reconfigure their understanding of, of of death? How do they do it before the war? Yeah, before the Second World War. Yeah, exactly. Yes, okay, right. Um, the So the Nazis really had, they, they drew on a tremendous number of influences when they were trying to sort of formulate their own sense of what death meant. And, and you know, they drew on everything from Norse mythology to Christianity to, um, I, I, you know, sort of natural scientific understandings of death. Um they had there. There's a real. There's a. In many ways, there's a variety of opinions about this. I mean, there's not sort of. There's not sort of one. You know, Nazism was really a work in progress. It always was. It was from 1933 until 1945. It never. You know, to say what Nazism is in any particular moment is actually quite complicated because, uh, because circumstances were dramatically changing all the time, and because this is a. You know, Nazism was a revolutionary worldview. I mean, the Nazis set out to change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, they set out to change their immediate world, and they set out to change the world in general. So, um, but they drew on a lot of different influences. They they sort of at the core, I think you could say almost all Nazi thinking about death was the notion that death was simply the passage from one form of, of existence to another. So that when bodies were buried, they were thought to fertilize the soil, which then brings forth new life. And they saw sort of all of nature and themselves as sort of uh, a part of one symbiotic relationship. So that 
um, th- so that they, they would always say, you know, there, there really is no such thing as death because we, because Germany lives on in the future. Mm-hmm. It lives on in future generations. And the, 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 the thing that gives life to these new generations is in fact the dead. So there's this real interesting connection between, I mean, everyone, you know, when you try, when you think about Nazis, you always think about the so-called blood and soil ideology. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was quite literal in the way that they thought about death mm-hmm. blood goes in, you know, the dead body goes into the soil. It is, you know, the soil is nourished and they would have used this precise terminology. The soil is nourished by the blood and then that gives birth to new life. And so it was all this kind of, you know, harmonious relationship between, between the Germans and their, and their soil from which they kind of sprang, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So, to, to have, you know, again, they come into a context that already has its own traditions and, and a legacy, and, and it is, to some extent, um, I won't say contradicted, but it is uh, not consistent with um, Nazi ideology. So, for example, mixed cemeteries, uh, where there are uh, uh, Aryan folks and non-Aryan folks, uh, how do they deal with that? And then also the, the entire question of religious burial. The Nazis were not mm. terribly excited by uh, organized religion. Um, how, how do they deal with these issues? Yeah, I mean, those, those those are really interesting questions. I would say that first, the, you know, city cemeteries, for example, I mean, because the book focuses on the city of Berlin, I mean, yep. very intensively. So um, it, municipal cemeteries were places where people of, of various faiths were buried or people with with who didn't who didn't have any religious identity at all. So. Um, what, one of the things that's interesting that I found, so, so I'm just going to tra- change your question around a little bit Please. to sort of show how, um, the state, you know, the state had its ideas, the Nazis had their ideas about death, but then there's what people did and the way that they sort of respond to the, 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 um, to this kind of Nazi, uh, project in process. But I mean, one of the things that I found most fascinating of all was, the way that almost immediately after 1933, uh, Germans begin writing letters to municipal cemeteries and saying, uh, and, and trying to sort of reserve plots in Aryan only cemeteries mm-hmm. so that immediately people connected or, or, or the, the kinds of segregations that the Nazis seem to be calling for between Germans and Jews, it, almost immediately people took these up and they saw that they saw even death, I mean, you would, you know, racial ideology is one thing. And then you think about people needing even to separate the dead from one another. It's actually really striking, I think. Mm-hmm. And so people almost immediately take this up as a, as a part of, 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 of creating a new world. Yes, there have to be cemeteries where only Germans are buried uh, and not Jewish Germans. So I found that really interesting. And then you also asked about religious cemeteries and, and sort of the role of organized religion. You know, this is interesting, too. I, I found, again, I, I would kind of, I'll t- kind of turn the question around a little bit. One of the things that I found most interesting was that, you know, the Nazis tried to create their own sort of um, burial rituals outside the church. Mm-hmm. They tried to create their own funerary rituals. They tried to, you know, they, they described in great detail what a German, meaning, you know, a national socialist burial should look like. Uh, what sorts of elements should be there? What should the aesthetics be? It, would there be music, right? And and they, they, they described all of those things. What's, what's kind of interesting to me, and really um, at the heart of some of the things that I'm fascinated by about Nazism, was the, was the way that actually um, it wasn't so much that, that, that the Nazis were able to impose their rituals on the churches. It was more like the churches, in many cases, pastors would see uh, not Nazi ritual and adopt it on their own into churchly rituals so that you get a, a really syncretic kind of thing happening. And nobody knows, we can never know what might've happened to this syncretic uh, uh, Christian slash uh, Nazi burial ritual had, had it been able to continue to develop past 1945. But um, what I saw was not so much sort of the, the Nazis saying, um, in other words, not trying to impose their own ideas about what ought to happen when, when a person gets buried, although they certainly had their ideas about that. But rather, people, you know, members of the public, uh, members of the clergy in particular, taking up these these rights as, as part of a of what a German burial should look like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So this is consistent with something that has been, I think of it as kind of the drumbeat of modern, by modern I mean since the 1970s or 80s, 
historiography about uh, the relationship of the German population to, to the Nazi movement, and, and that is that it was a generally supportive one. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's, yeah. Because yeah. um, we used to have this idea that somehow the Nazis were uh, – the analogy that comes to mind a little bit like the Soviets in the sense they were trying to um, – they really had occupied uh, Germany, and then the German population was hostile, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Right. right. No. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I, I think there are there are scholars who would, would dispute this. I mean, there's not absolute consensus about this, to be sure. There are people who would say that you know that that the emphasis on 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 um, on consensus from the German population, uh, the emphasis has been too great, and that actually we should look more at the the extent to which the Nazis used terror to keep mm-hmm. the population in line. But I, I I tend to come down on the other side of that. It seems to me quite quite clear that Germans um, adopted, uh, well, that, that's another, that's actually another aspect of this too. I think there's, there's a way in which the terms that we use to describe this um, actually, uh, um, they, they don't clarify what we want to see. They actually kind of make things more complicated. So if you, if you think of Nazism as like a system that was full blown in 1933, and then it comes, it comes to power and it, and it imposes itself on a population, uh, then you can't see that actually Nazism, it, you know, came out of German culture. It was it's a product of German culture, mm-hmm. right? And and then um, in power, the Nazis wanted to do things, but 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 of course they they, they could only do things within within the, the the range of options that were supplied by the culture itself, and 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 by what people would tolerate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me that that's kind of the way that when I said that I think of Nazism as a work in progress and that I think my work about death demonstrates its work in progressness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's exactly what I mean. That, that the, the thing was the, the, the thing that we call Nazism was, was constantly a changing thing. It was constantly responding to new circumstances and it was a society wide project. It was not a project of a few individuals at the top, which is of course, as you said, the way that people used to conceptualize. Yeah. It. Right. Well, and the, you know, again, as someone who's studied Russia and the Soviet Union for a long time, I think the, the difference is pretty striking. Um, mm. the, the Soviets were, uh, at least initially, something like an occupying power, and, and there was great antipathy in the population against them. They they did not uh, feel constrained by Russian culture often to do whatever they wanted to do. Yes. And uh, so we we see a very different kind of relationship between the, the people and their and their leaders. Uh, you know, I, you know, and it, it, the. You know, there's there's striking things that I learned a long time ago about this. You know, the openness of the press in Germany, even during the war, uh, where they would simply talk about th- the way things were going. In the Soviet Union, this never happened. Mm. The, the, the government could never tell the truth, and 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 almost never did. So there, there are lots of lots of I could go on and on about this, but in any event, let's move on actually to the war itself. So uh, the war opens, goes pretty well, and the Russian campaign starts on June twenty second, nineteen forty one. Doesn't go so well, and right. uh, and uh, the. I just talked to somebody, or I listened to an interview, actually, on the New Books Network, on the New Books and Military History Channel, in nineteen in, in 1941, after they invaded uh, the Soviet Union, um, Wehrmacht soldiers or military personnel were dying at a rate of 1,000 a day. Yes. Yeah, 1,000 a day. Yes, it's and, an amazing number. Yeah, and uh, so, um, so, yeah, something has to be done about this. What, what do they do? Well, at first they tried to maintain the same sorts of practices that they had implemented in 1933, which is to say that they created, you know, they, they marked out cemeteries for, for, um, for, for soldiers who had died. They, you know, they created, there, there were people within, within military units whose, whose job it was to identify bodies, to get them buried and to create, you know, markers for those graves. But this doesn't last very long and it falls apart at a certain point. Uh, and then, and then, you know, as the, as the front sort of creeps closer and closer and closer to Germany, um, the, the whole sort of apparatus for, for identifying bodies, for burying bodies, entirely falls apart. Mm-hmm. And, so, and it's just not really a, there's not, uh, it, it, g- given the constraints of the war, it just wasn't possible to maintain any of the, of the you know, traditional expectations about what happens with war dead. Mm-hmm. So I, this is, again, I should tell listeners that you, you don't deal explicitly with a lot of these issues that I'm about to bring up because I, I'm just interested as somebody that has often wondered about a couple of questions. So they created yep. cemeteries in um, Poland and the Soviet Union, formal yes. military cemeteries in the first couple of years of the war. 
Yes. They did. But then as things went on, they, they found they were basically unable to do that. Yes. Yeah. And grade registration, what did they call it? As you say, just fell apart. These Now, when the Soviets came back through, did they rip all these... Uh, um, what do they do with these cemeteries? This is a very good question, and I actually cannot answer this, and I need to know this, actually, because yeah. it's something that I've wondered about many times. My impression uh, is that is that the Soviets, uh, they, they destroyed them. Yes, I think that's right. And I'll tell you, there's one one thing I, well, one thing that I know about this in particular is the that there, there, there was a, after the war, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, it's really been since the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's n- that's right. It's been since the collapse of the Soviet Union that um, groups of Germans have, and Austrians as well, not just Germans, Austrians as well, have gone to um, gone to parts of the former Soviet Union and tried to identify bodies and tried mm-hmm. to uh, bring remains back. And so my impression is precisely yours, that these cemeteries were destroyed. And in fact, in Poland, for example, in parts of Poland that had been, you know, inhabited by both Germans and Poles, there are many stories after the war about the destruction of German cemeteries. Mm-hmm. Now, the extent to which this is true, I mean, whether or not this was a, you know, if it was if it was sort of undertaken on a, on a mass scale, or if it was just, you know, in the, in the, in, in you know, a product of, of immediate sort of vengeful feelings at the end of the war, you know, or if all cemeteries, German cemeteries were destroyed in those places. That that I don't know, but I do know that there are many, many stories that you can read from the post-war, from post-war literature uh, in Germany about the destruction of those cemeteries, uh, particularly in Poland. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, during the war, did the, uh, and let's exclude for the moment the uh, mass bombing campaign and the destruction of cities, did the Nazis change the ways in which they presented uh, the death of military personnel? Over time? Yeah. Well, I mean, on some in some ways, they you know part of what part of what was sort of part of what kind of worked about their idea, if you will, um, to put it in kind of instrumental terms. But part of what what worked about their idea of um, you know that the, the the blood of Germans nourishes the soil, and that's what makes this land ours. Mm-hmm. Part of what worked about that was it was really a part of the you know imperialist project of of conquering Eastern Europe. I mean, everywhere that Germans died. Everywhere that their blood uh, was spilled on the ground was now thought to be, and this is, you know, to use the words that were used by people at the time, holy and German. The blood of Germans makes the soil holy and German. Uh, And that, you know, whether people were being buried or not in the East, that kind of that rhetoric, that idea continued, you know, so that I mean, at least that if 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 you if if you took that idea seriously, um, there could be consolation in that idea, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, no, I see what you mean. So then let's actually turn to the mass bombing campaigns. Uh, so uh, it, it's hard for us to grasp the scale of the, these things, but tens of thousands of people were dying uh, d- during the course of one several-hour raid. This happened many times uh, over large sections of Germany. It produced lots of bodies. What did the Germans do? Well, they did different things in different places, and they were kind of in a, they were constantly kind of in a conversation. You know, municipal leaders were constantly in a conversation with other municipal leaders in other cities about what should we do, what's best, um, what are, be- you know, in other words, trying to develop what we would now think of as best practices for dealing with this problem. And um, they, you know, in, in many cases, what I found, which I, and I really found it quite fascinating, um, there was a real strong desire to maintain whatever kinds of rituals had been um, had been commonplace before the bombing. So it, it was, you know, people wanted there to be individual coffins and individual burials of, of each person who, who died in the bombing raids. Um, but this, of course, was not always possible. And sometimes sometimes it, it it you know it ceased to have any meaning at all because when at a certain point when you have too many bodies to bury and you have no one to build coffins and you have no wood to make coffins out of mm-hmm. and you have nowhere to bury the dead at some point you start using mass graves now of course this this that you know presents a particular kind of ideological and cultural i would say cultural problem um in nazi germany which is that you know, first of all, a tremendous, as I was sort of describing before, a tremendous amount of in- of emphasis was placed on the proper burial of the dead and the sort of um, the, the idea that that part of what makes us who we are 
is that we care about how the dead are dealt with mm-hmm. and that we and that we have very particular rituals for, for accomplishing burial and that we we care about what graves look like and this sort of thing. So now you can't do that. And it really in, in, for some people, this is this is kind of a, a, the, a great confrontation with the with the situation that the nation is in. That we can no longer bury the dead. What does this mean about what's happening, right? So as the, so, you know, the the bombs are the the front is creeping closer and closer towards Germany. The bombs are falling. People are beginning to be buried without coffins in mass graves, or maybe they're being buried if, if they're lucky, if you will, in in paper coffins. Mm-hmm. Um, it it really created, I have to say, an existential crisis in Germany, and this existential crisis continues after the war. It's not something that you know. Once the war is over and people can begin to put the pieces back together, now the existential crisis is over. No, in fact, I found that you know the the, the existential crisis goes on for years. It's very difficult to find a memoir in 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 in, in German uh, sources, you know, after the the Second World War that does not refer to the burial of the dead in 1945 and the kinds of the kinds of um, the the ugly reality of what that of what that meant and what it looked like because mm-hmm. people saw it. I mean, that was another thing, you know, seeing. For, for you know, for a lot of people living in a in a 20th century city uh, in Europe, to see dead bodies was not something that they had necessarily. I mean, they obviously they might have seen the, the bodies of their family members if they had died at home, right? But they but just to be confronted with dead bodies on a mass scale was really uh, really produced a lasting kind of existential shock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did they organize the uh, recovery of bodies, and then how did they organize? the discovery of the identities of bodies. This is something we pay a lot of attention to. So I was just wondering how they did it. No, absolutely. I mean, there were people, you know, there were in, in the city of Berlin, there was a particular uh, um, office that was set up for the purpose of, um, of recovering bodies of, um, of dealing with the bodies. They would, you know, sometimes bodies would be taken to, there's a really kind of ugly image in my book of a, um, a quite shocking image, I should say of, uh, of a, what was called a Leichensammelstelle, which is a nice long German word, which means a corpse collection site. You know that it's a bit, it was a big room, like a gymnasium or something, a big, a big empty room where the bodies were laid out and people could come and try to find. Um, you know, if they had lived in the neighborhood where where a, a, an apartment building had been brought down or something like that, they could come there and look for their loved ones. And up to a certain point, I mean, the city really tried, as I was saying, you know, to maintain the sort of normal. Um, ways of burying. So, so people would come and they would say, uh, I don't like the kind of coffin that you've put my loved one in. I want, I want them removed from that coffin and I, w- I want to purchase a coffin on my own and, and I'll supply that and then I'll take care of the burial. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, at a certain point, this all falls apart. And, what, and, and I found very fascinating and very poignant, actually, at the end of the war, where when the, when the whole thing falls apart and people can't do it anymore, they, the city can no longer provide the services that it's been able to provide up to then. Uh, people have to do it themselves. People have to bury their own dead or they have to bury their neighbors. Or they have to bury the old lady who lives down the hall from them in their apartment building. Mm-hmm. And they do that. And they, they bury people wherever they can find a spot. And they, they find plants. Uh, they find um, little bits of glass or little um, bits of rock, or they find uh, p- p- you know slats off a packing crate, and they they build literally a kind. You know, they they bury the they bury the person that they are meant to bury. They ha- they say some words over the grave. Um, if there are flowers that should be found, they they place flowers you know on the grave. They and they they kind of try to simulate as best they can the rituals of burial that had obtained before the bombs came. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So let's move on to the point a little bit after the war. Uh, a, a question that occurred to me while reading your book is, so you've buried all of these people all over the place. Um, it, was that with the notion in mind that you were going to uh, disinter them and bury them properly in a proper place? And if so, where were you going to do that and how was that handled? Right. So, I mean, a lot of people do seem to have thought do seem to have had the idea that at one point or another they were going to they were going to dig up the bodies of their loved ones and they were going to see to their proper burial. Be- we know this because, for example, I found this really interesting in one of the files that I read in, in the Landesarchiv in the, in the in the state archive in Berlin um, or the, the city archive in Berlin. The um, people would often place doors or you know big heavy pieces of lumber over the body if they weren't. In other words, if they had had to bury, say. 
their their loved one, their mom, their dad, their their grandmother. They they would bury him or her, and then and they didn't have a coffin, so they would place a heavy door over the body before putting earth on top of it again, so that they would be able later, first of all, to simulate a coffin, I think, but also so that, you know, hopefully later to facilitate getting them back out of the ground. And so after the war, there's the kind of, um, the allies very quickly, you know, they, they have to deal with the, they have to deal with the dead because they have to, um, uh, they have to bring order to the city basically. And, and it, that certainly meant dealing with the dead. So, the, the the allies will kind of come in and reorganize burial in various ways, but the the Germans themselves sometimes under cover of night, you know, would would go out, dig people up, uh, and take them off somewhere else in handcarts and with whatever conveyance they were able to find. Sometimes, I mean, I read stories about people, you know, uh, at, after the war had ended, who say a baby died, and the entire you know apartment building where they live got together to try to figure out how to build a coffin for the baby. Where could they get some white paint because babies' coffins tended to be painted white? Where could they get a shroud for the baby, something for the baby to be buried in? How were they going to get the baby from point A to point B, that is from the apartment building to, um, to, to, to whatever cemetery was available for burial? Uh, so people, you know, faced with these circumstances simply took matters into their own hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's making me kind of sad be honest with you, I, I find myself, yeah, this is sad. Uh, so uh, let's, let's turn then to the, the final um, couple of chapters in the book. One is about uh, death in the East, uh, and one is about death in the West. Let's start with the East. And So uh, w- once the war was over, over and, and the, um, uh, the German Democratic Republic is set up as a socialist state, how, how do things change? Well, I mean, in some ways, I don't think they really changed that much. I mean, in the period, that's kind of my argument, is that you know, certainly the, the GDR did develop, the German Democratic Republic did develop its own quite interesting and, and, and really, really fascinating um, culture of death that was, that was, you know, sort of that combined some elements of German culture, of the, of the sort of German death ways with um, socialist ideals. But that doesn't happen in the 50s. This, the state wants the state wants it to happen and they, and they do various things to try to make it happen. But at least I argued in the book that, you know, particularly after having dealt with this existential crisis of what had happened in 1945, the, the, the non-burial of the dead, you know, the bodies laying in the streets, people not being able to bury their loved ones in coffins. I mean, all of this, um, the memory of that was very powerful in the minds of many East Berliners. And so the things that the state tried to do, to, for example, to take religion out of burial, just wasn't going to happen for a lot of people. Um, even though, I mean, you know, a lot of people would say, uh, th- this is not uncontroversial. I mean, the, the the extent to which German society was religious in the 1950s is a matter of some um, scholarly debate, to be sure. And particularly the eastern part of Berlin, which had historically been kind of the proletarian part of the city, is often thought to have been, uh, um, you know, markedly not religious. I found something quite different in my own work. I, I think that that's that's a bit that's that's drawing a line that's a bit too too sharp and too dark. I would say that um, religious values and burial and sort of I, I'm sorry, religious values pertaining to death and sort of religious rituals of death clearly still pertained in the 1950s, and the state was really not able to make many inroads. Uh, and and I think that was both because because of religion, because of people's um, traditional values uh, vis-a-vis religion, but I also think it was because of the catastrophe of 45, and people wanted somehow to, rather than going bravely into the socialist future, in a certain sense, they wanted to recoup. They wanted to sort of, um, they, they wanted to um, reestablish the, the par- par- certain parameters of death, you know, and, and to sort of um, put back together what had been broken in a way. Mm-hmm. And were, were the socialist authorities? Did they uh, did they take kind of a, a hands off approach to it? Then I mean, when somebody died, or fifties, yeah. Um, well, I wouldn't say hands off. I mean, they did try. There were certain there were certain things they tried. For example, they wanted to make burial. They wanted to take burial out of the hands of private property owners. They didn't want individuals running um, burial services or or, or or what we would call you know funeral homes or something like that. Yeah. Um, they wanted the state, to, or in the case of Berlin, they wanted the municipal government to be responsible for that. And they wanted to, to, to you know, private coffin makers, private flower shops, uh, which, you know, serve cemeteries, private, anything sort of um, private property or private entrepreneurship oriented uh, 
that, 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 that pertain to burial, they wanted to take out of the hands of, of, of individuals and put into the, into the hands of the city or the mm-hmm. state. So they did try to do this, um, and they worked on it throughout the 50s, but, but they weren't successful. And to be honest, I mean, in this case of Berlin, it's really interesting. They weren't really successful at doing that until arguably the 70s or 80s, and even then, there were still private individuals who owned um, you know, shops where people could buy coffins or, or who provided burial services. Mm-hmm. So they just weren't able to do it. And of course, the other thing is that the communists, you know, really, the, um, the SED, the Socialist Unity Party, which is the, the, the ruling communist party of East Germany, really, you know, they, they draw on a very long and rich um, history of socialist uh, non-religious burial practice um, in the 50s. They have, you know, they have they, there were socialist, non-religious burials in Weimar, Germany, and before mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So that, that history is there, but it seems to me that it wasn't particularly influential until a bit later on. Mm-hmm. And a bit later on, then why does it change? Well, I, I think, and I would argue that it, was, it, had, it had something to do with the fact that the Berlin Wall was built in 1961, and that's why I sort of end my story then. Mm-hmm. I think it was after 1961 that, you know, uh, the, the border... Um, you know, Edith Sheffer's wonderful book, which you've talked about on yeah, your show recently. Right. Um, Edith shows in her book uh, how fluid the border was. Um, and that was true also uh, in, in, in between East and West Berlin. The border was quite fluid up until the wall was built. And in 1961, the ball, in August 1961, the wall gets built. And after that, the, the possibility of sort of going somewhere else to have someone buried or burying someone over in the West, if you chose to do that for one reason or another, because you wanted, uh, you wanted a religious burial and you didn't want to be hassled by your neighbors or something like that. Mm-hmm. That, um, that possibility was foreclosed in 1961. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So then let's turn to the West. What happens there? In the West. I mean, I think that, um, it's a really interesting story too, that there's much, you know, now, um, in a sense, the kind of uh, the kind of grand ideological schemes of of the recent decades of communism of of uh, of Nazism are are not going to have the same kind of influence, obviously, on death that they had in the 1930s and 40s. So, in some ways, West German uh, West Berlin burial culture uh, kind of takes its own various paths. But I mean, one of the things that I found interesting was that even though there wasn't a sort of, um, even though there wasn't a sort of, you know, powerful ideological, uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think how to put it, powerful sort of ideological impulse to shape death in West Berlin, as had been true in in previous decades. uh, Nonetheless, there were changes. I mean, what we really see is not so much changes in burial ritual or burial practice in the West, but we see um, that gradually over time, the, the war kind of, West Germans work very hard to sort of bring order, just as East, Ger- as East Berliners did. West Germans and West Berliners uh, work very hard to bring order back to the rituals of burial. And for the West Germans and for the West Berliners, this meant creating laws about war graves. Now, a war grave was uh, a very expansive category in the 1950s, and it could include anyone from a victim of the Holocaust to an SS officer. Anyone who had died during the war, essentially, got their grave protected in perpetuity by law. Mm-hmm. So this meant that every sort of, um, every cemetery in West Berlin has, and you can see this if you're ever there, if any of the listeners are ever interested, go to a cemetery in Western Berlin, and you'll see um, little parts that are designated, parts of cemeteries that are designated for the quote-unquote war dead, this, again, expansive category. And uh, I argue in the book that, you know, Creating a law like that, and then and then sort of bringing the dead into spaces that were designed for them, that that that, that acknowledged their dignity, in a sense, was a way of domesticating the experience of mass death. So now there's a place for the dead; they're there, and we can all get on with the business of rebuilding, of of uh, economic expansion, of what have you. I mean, that that was sort of the. That the most dramatic change for me about the West was not so much about you know how people buried the dead per se or what they thought about death, but more about the fact that death begins to recede from consciousness in a way that since the First World War had not been possible. It had been a constant feature of life, and now suddenly in the late by the late fifties, uh, death is not so much a part of everyday life anymore. Mm-hmm. I see. So let me ask a couple of questions, some of which go beyond the 
the scope of the book and some of which don't or at least touched on. Uh, one question which I think many people will be interested in is how the Germans even today deal with uh, mm, the war dead from uh, World War II. There was a famous incident in which uh, I guess it was Ronald Reagan went to a, <clears throat> a cemetery. Uh, right in Bitburg. Uh, Bitburg, yeah, that, that had um, uh, members of the SS in it, and uh, that this became so, somewhat controversial. I don't, don't exactly remember what he said or why it was controversial, but except to say that these SS members were there. How, how do Germans uh, deal deal with uh, this today? With the issue of the war dead, and with- yeah, especially World War II dead, and people, you know, SS officers, and, and you know people that might have been perpetrators, that kind of thing. Right, absolutely. Well, this the law, you know, the 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 war. It's called the War Graves Law. This law that I was talking about, that which was instituted in 1952, or which became law in 1952. Um, the War Graves Law still pertains, and the War Graves Law has, in some ways, become became more expansive over time rather than less expansive. So that that means that. Uh, those graves, unless something's happened that I'm not aware of, those graves in Bitburg are still there. And um, I think that in a way, the way that uh, German society deals with those graves now is that they're not really, they're, they're in a way not present. You know, they're, they're in a cemetery, they're in a far corner, usually they're in a far corner of a cemetery, war graves, and they're just sort of not, um, it's not something that I, it's a good question too, because I mean, I, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna go to Germany this summer, and I'm gonna think about um, about you're asking this a little bit more deeply, because I do wonder if, if for example, um, there if there have been recent moves to to change the the, the parameters of the war graves law, and I don't know that actually, <laughs> but I can say that you know, in the case of Reagan going to Bitburg, um, you know the. The, the problem that so many people had with the incident was that he, he was basically equating, as the war graves law itself did, he was basically equating all people who died in the war together, you know, equating them and, and calling them all victims. Mm. So, and obviously some of them were victims and some of them were not. So, um, yeah, so that, it, it, but my, I don't think that it's, I don't think that this is a something that's a, a constant feature of public life by any means in Germany today, uh, or something that gets discussed very much. That's my sense, anyway. Yeah, no, I, 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 I see what you mean. So another, another question I had uh, is, uh, we in the United States are, of course, are, are very familiar with holidays, public holidays that, that commemorate uh, the service of people in the military and war dead, things like this, you know, to Veterans Day and Memorial Day. That sort of thing. The English have them, and the Canadians have them. Do the Germans have anything like this? Yes, they have a, a national day of mourning, which is called Volkstrauertag. So, literally, yeah, you know, right. the People's <laughs> Memorial Day, the People's Day of Mourning. Um, they do have it, and uh, it actually, that it, my question would be, and I'm really interested in this. Volkstrauertag was a as a was a holiday that was invented in West in West Germany after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, it. Uh, it, there are ways in which there are antecedents of it. I shouldn't say it was wholly invented after the war, but in any case, it, it, it was instituted as a holiday after the Second World War. And then, of course, when the unification happened, when, when the two Germanys became one again, um, did how did East Germans feel about Volkstrauertag? Because, you know, for them, the notion of the, for them, the great ideological problem of the war dead of, of the Second World War as a, as a, as a, you know, having formed a new socialist fatherland, the problem with the war dead of the Second World War was that they had fought for Hitler. So obviously, you could not commemorate them. Mm-hmm. And so, Volkstrauertag, I would assume, had some very strange um, sensibilities attached to it for for East Germans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I imagine it did. Now, do they go and put flowers on the graves of war dead like Americans do? Uh, yes. I mean, these sorts of things happen. They're also, I mean, really interesting things like. Uh, there, there are organizations, there are private organizations in Germany that are that are that care for the graves of the war dead. Mm-hmm. They, um, they, they bring you know young people. Uh, um, the, 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 the sort of ideology behind this has changed dramatically over the years since 1945. But I mean, there, are, there's a private organization uh, that takes um, young Germans to various uh, sites of German war graves, whether in Germany or outside of it. And the, the, stu- the young students and pupils will you know, tend the graves. And of course, this is done now. The idea of doing it now has to do with uh, reminding oneself or, you know, sort of reminding the German nation of its, not only its responsibilities to the dead, but of course to peace. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so now that has a very pacifistic um, tone to it. 
but the the origins of that of that group are, are quite different. It's just mm-hmm. that things have you know ideologically have shifted so dramatically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now none of these graves, the war dead of World War Two, uh, none of them have swastikas on. You can't have a swastika on something in Germany, can you? No, you can't. And I don't think. I mean, there was a period of time when you know those sorts of things were chipped out of graves, yeah. and even, but even throughout the fifties, people would still complain about. I I saw a grave today in this in the cemetery that has a swastika on it. And it needs to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, I would assume that that process is, is you know, I, I would be very, very, very surprised. And, and I think the local people in whatever town this might happen would be very surprised to still find one because I think they've been, you know, quite systematically taken care of. Uh-huh, I see. Let me, let me ask one more question about uh, the German war dead. I know that when I was in, been to the Soviet Union, I noticed one thing is that it's often the case that um, – particularly in the Western Soviet Union, that that there were Jewish cemeteries, and they were separate from Christian cemeteries, of course, but they'd been destroyed. Uh, Not destroyed in the sense that they had had all the the grave markers removed and been plowed under, but they they had just been plundered, Mm -hmm. Uh, and they had never been reinstated. They they were really in kind of a sad situation. I saw a bunch of – actually, I think I saw a bunch of them. Um, when, like when, when, when would they have been plundered? You know, I don't know that. Uh, to to oh. be honest with you, I don't know. These these were areas that were occupied by the Nazis. Yes. Uh, it, well, in some cases they were, in some cases they weren't. I I think I remember seeing them at least in three places, um, of places that, that there were there were Jewish cemeteries. People call them the Jewish cemetery, and you know, there's graffiti all over the stone. Stones had been disrupted and things like this, or they had been all ripped up. Um, oh gosh. So did, was, did anything like that happen under the Nazis? Yeah, I mean there the. the there, it did. It, things like that did happen, and there were, you know, dismantlings of, of Jewish cemeteries. And uh, although the the main cemetery in Weissensee, the main the main Jewish cemetery in Berlin, there are several actually, but um, the main one in Weissensee, uh, which was in the eastern what becomes East Berlin, um, remained intact during the Second World War. There were there were it, it was damaged. It was it was quite badly damaged. It's an enormous cemetery and it's very, very fascinating. I, I would encourage anyone who visits to go and, and and have the opportunity to see it because it's really quite amazing. Um parts of it were very badly damaged and um had to be um had to be repaired and put back together after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were places, you know, in Berlin um the dis- the wholesale destruction of Jewish cemeteries doesn't happen during the Nazi period. And part of the reason is that, I mean, Nazi officials talk to each other and they say, we can't, we can't get rid of the cemeteries because we still need a place to bury Jews. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, which is, you know, interesting on many levels. But, um, but in other cities, I do remember reading in files about, um, in other cities where, where you know, city officials would write and say, "Look, all of the Jews have been removed from our town, and we want the we want permission to destroy the cemetery, and we want to use the materials in the cemetery for other things. Mm-hmm. Um, what things? I don't know. But um, so yes, of course that did. You're absolutely right. It did happen, uh, but it doesn't seem to have happened in quite the same way in Berlin that it might have happened in other places. Mm-hmm. So do you know if there was any movement after the war to reinstate those cemeteries, or who took care of them when they were basically, you know, when the Jewish population had been reduced quite severely, and did they fall into disrepair? One reason I mention this is because even, you know, in the United States, uh, particularly in the Midwest, uh, although even here in New England, I can tell you, there are lots of abandoned graveyards. Sure. They're just, they're just abandoned, you can tell. Yes. Yeah. I think one of the things that's interesting about Germany as a country is that that is so rare, actually, mm-hmm. that, that you don't seem to see many. I mean, you know, in the United States and in the, in the American South, which is what I, the place I know best here, that abandoned graveyards are very, very commonplace yeah. things. And people will buy a house and then they'll find, oh, there's a grave in the backyard. <laughs> yeah. no, I mean, it just yeah. happened not long right. ago. Yeah. Which is really interesting. A man said, I don't know where this gravestone came from, but it's in my backyard and I'd like to offer to the public, you know, the opportunity to please come, come and claim it. Right. But in any case, um, in Germany, uh, that, that seems to be much, much less the case. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, uh, so to answer your question, the, um, in the East, uh, well, first of all, there, there was a small Jewish community, of course, in Berlin after sure, the war sure. and they stay and, and they're there and they, and they, and, 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 and they've, and they've lived there. And they, um, the, it, at a certain point, the Jewish community in Berlin decided to build a new cemetery, actually, in West Berlin to serve the part of the community that lived there. And I believe, I believe this is true, that the majority of the, of the Jewish population in Berlin had lived in the west of the city 
uh, before bef- before the Nazis came to power. And so they they, they built a, a new cemetery there in, in the mid fifties. The older Jewish cemeteries that had existed in the city uh, in in the eastern part of the city really were to, for the most part uh, were simply kind of left alone for for quite a long time. But then in the 1970s, I want to say, and certainly by the 1980s, there was a renewed interest in sort of uh, under, under the communist government in sort of restoring those graves and bringing the, bringing the cemeteries back. Uh, in other words, um, bringing them back to their former beauty and, and restoring the, the gravestones and restoring the walls that were built around them and those sorts of things. So, so that today, um, and that project then then began, you know, in the eighties, and and then continued after the after the the vendor after the the wall fell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's I, th- I just find that very very interesting. I don't know what has happened to those Jewish cemeteries in the Soviet Union after uh, the Soviet Union fell. Um, I've, I've, very interesting to know. I've that. been back to look. Um, I do remember seeing actually. I was living in Germany once. I do remember seeing. I would have called it an abandoned uh, graveyard, but it was a very small graveyard. Uh, that had 16th century graves in it. I do remember that, and uh, and there were five or six of them there on a hillside. They didn't look didn't look tended, but I was I'm just astounded that there were 16th century gravestones there. That just blew my mind. Being from a place that, you know, <laughs> the right? town I grew up in was built in the late 19th century. Uh, so, exactly. Yeah, very interesting. Well, we've taken up enough of your time. It's a really terrific book. I want to want to thank you very much for uh, writing it, and again, uh, encourage the folks at Cambridge University Press to put out a uh, a paperback edition of it so it can be read by <laughs> lots and lots of folks. Um, so, uh, Monica, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing now. This is our traditional final question on New Books in History. What is your next project? Well, thanks for asking. I mean, I, I'm, I am... When I was writing Death in Berlin, I became very fascinated by folklore because a lot of my sources are folklore. You know, a lot of the sources that I use in the book are are. are written by folklorists. Mm-hmm. So people who really studied sort of German practices of all kinds, uh, German cultural practices. And so I became fascinated by folklore. And the more I read in folklore, the more fascinated I became by um, experiences of supernatural events in post-war West Germany. Wow. So I'm writing a book now, which has to do with experiences of the supernatural in post-war Germany, which is a capacious um, subject. I mean, it could mean all sorts of different things. And um, it could mean everything from um, the numerous apparitions of the Virgin Mary, which were which were seen in, in, in post-war West, West Germany. It could mean uh, um, apparently there was a quite significant uptick in... Uh, accusations of witchcraft Holy among God. Germans in some parts of the country. Holy it, all kinds of interesting things happened in the 50s that, that belie our sort of picture of the 50s as a, as a really placid, you know, um, everybody just hunkered down and rebuilt the country and was very serious about that. And, and there's all kinds of interesting stuff that I've been finding. So now my book is going to be, has, has to do with experiences of the supernatural. And I'm also very interested in the question of what, what, did evil mean to Germans in the wake of the Holocaust and the Second World War? Mm-hmm. How what did they identify as evil? And I, and I'm interested not also in 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 the theology of evil, but I'm also interested in the popular culture of evil uh, and sort of what did people think evil was? Where did they think evil was located, if you will, um, in the in the wake of the Holocaust and the Second World War? I think, well, that sounds like an absolutely terrific, terrific topic. It, it's uh, it's. It, it falls into line with a preoccupation of mine. There's a book that I'm writing a review of, the subtitle of which is How the World Became Modern. And the premise of this, this is quite a famous book. I won't tell yeah. you what, who wrote it, but you can look <laughs> it up on your own. Uh, okay. How the World Became Modern. Um, and um, the, the author, a, a very distinguished gentleman, basically defines modernity as uh, a kind of, uh, mm, what would one call it? It would be a kind of uh, uh, egotistical atheism uh, uh, guided by pleasure seeking, that's mm-hmm. modernity to him. And, wow. and I, I, I don't know where he lives, but that that just isn't what's modern where I live. Uh, most people go to church, and most <laughs> Americans believe in God, and Lord right. knows there's superstition all over the place. Uh, wow. So I, yeah, I'm, I think that may be modern in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I believe he lives. But <laughs> in certain quarters, yeah, of Cambridge, in certain in certain sections of Cambridge, Massachusetts, that might be modern, but almost nowhere else in the world. So yeah, I have to say I agree with you. I I, I'm not even sure what modern means. To yeah, I don't, I don't know either. But if it doesn't include religion and superstition, then it really, uh, 
you got to kind of wonder what this guy's been smoking because <laughs> probably still smoke a lot of that stuff in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But I don't know. You know, again, if yeah, it's astounding to me that 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 you would you would think that you know atheism is. Mo- I mean, I you know. Also, I mean, it's not like there aren't Greek presidents to atheism. It's just, anyway, my old hobby horses, I think that people, yeah, think the world is their refrigerator. The, um, <laughs> as a friend of mine used to say, anyway, we've been talking with Monica Black, and I could talk for a lot longer with her. Really, I could, but I'm, I'm not going to make you bear that. She's written a book called Death in Berlin, From Weimar to Divided Germany. It's a terrific book. I recommend that you go and read it uh, if you can. Monica, thanks very much for being on the show. Oh, thank you, Marshall. It was a delight. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Monica Black about her new book, Death in Berlin, From Weimar to Divided Germany. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.